we have uh, an interesting scene here in Hosea. Um, and it, it's interesting how um, when I'm going through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, events of the world oftentimes remind me of things that we're studying in the Bible. For example, on Friday, you know, the big, you know, uh, uh, everybody's holding their breath because the jury was still meeting, but Friday they came out. And, you know, um, I think many people breathe a sigh of relief uh, in some ways because, well, if you believe in self-defense, uh, you know, you kind of are glad that he was acquitted of all five counts. But, but of all the things that happened, you know, of course, Portland did its normal uh, response Friday night. Um, riot declared in Portland as Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal sparked some protests. Um, and CBS News showed some video footage of our wonderful town once again, and you know, broken windows and fires lit in the streets, and uh, the police having to go out and um, you know do what they have to do, and uh, uh, unappreciated uh, for what they actually are doing. But uh, uh, you know, I have to say, you know, you see what's going on, and then you see the way this nation's so split. Um, and, and the narrative that's so wrong, you know? I mean, it's amazing how uh, much wrong information was out there. I saw a, a poll that was done in Europe yesterday, um, and it was basically asking Europeans, you know, you heard about this Rittenhouse uh, uh, situation of this guy that went out with his, you know, AR, everybody calls it an AR-15, uh, even though it's not, uh, it was an AR-14. Big difference, by the way. Um, uh, but uh, but it does, nobody cares about truth, so they're just like, yeah, he went out there and, 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 and they, they, they pulled people and, and the people in Europe, something like 78% of Europeans thought that some, you know, white supremacist kid went out and shot a bunch of black people. And that's what they said. They thought that's what happened. Um, but actually there was no white supremacy and that came out clearly in the trial. Um, even though our president said it was white supremacy, uh, I wonder now they're looking at uh, uh, civil charges against the president for, uh, anyway, that's gonna be an interesting thing to follow. Um, but, um, but he actually uh, shot uh, two white guys and injured the third white guy um, who was um, basically saying they wanted to kill him. And one guy even held a gun to his head and he, in self-defense, shot. Like, it, the narrative, nobody's getting, like, the, the narrative, at least the people that are out there painting this stuff on walls, if you ask them what actually happened, most of them don't actually know what happened. Um, and they're just, they're, they're, people are just being stirred up. Um, and it's really sad because that, that's, that's kind of the situation. There's just kind of this uh, false narrative and people are just angry. People are angry. But of all the images of that courthouse scene and all that, it was, was on the day they read the verdict. It was very Perry Mason-esque. Those of you guys that watch the old Perry Masons, you know, where the jury comes out and, and the, the, the defendant stands. It was very classic. And the, you know, the jury said, we the jury find the defendant. And then there's always that pregnant pause, you know, kind of where you're like, we find the defendant not guilty. And, uh, and then, you know, there were five charges, five counts. So, so then the second, on the second count, we find the defendant not guilty. And you can almost see a little relief on, on Rittenhouse's face, but the emotional trauma of all this, you could see it by the time they got to the fourth, uh, you know, did you see what happened? He started violently shaking. Like it was, it was um, you could tell, I mean, I kind of felt sorry for the kid. The emotional trauma that he was going through was so profound so that when they finally read the fifth, uh, you, know, uh, you know, that he was acquitted of the fifth and said not guilty, he collapsed in just this kind of heap on the desk in front of him. And it was just kind of this, you think, wow. Um, that, that's such a life changing moment. That's why we love movies, you know, where we see the jury say guilty or not guilty because in that very single moment, a person's life is gonna change 
in some cases, for the rest of their life. Maybe, uh, maybe they're gonna go to the death sentence, you know, and, and, and be uh, lethally injected or whatever, or in the movies, an electric chair. Or, or, or maybe they're gonna be set free. And, and that, that radical, powerful moment is kind of like, you think, wow. And that's why we, we love to see movies that are uh, centered on that kind of a theme. But think about that, what we saw on Friday, and think about the biggest courtroom and the biggest judge and the biggest issue that will ever be is the courtroom scene at the great white throne judgment that the Bible says will happen. There's going to be a courtroom scene where there's no jury, it's just God. God, the ultimate judge, is gonna look at a person's life and he'll either say guilty or not guilty. Now in the great white throne judgment, the courtroom scene there, the evidence will be brought and the books will be opened to see what a person did, the Bible says. But if you're at that great, great white throne judgment, can you imagine what a person's gonna feel when they realize what's at stake? Because a death sentence is nothing. Really, if you, if you read what the Bible says, a death sentence is no big deal compared to what's gonna happen at the great white throne judgment. Because it's not a death sentence or even a life imprisonment, it's eternal life and death and hell. Like the gravity of that moment is really profound. And if you're at that great white throne judgment, you're in big trouble. You see, the thing is, the Lord loves you so much that the Lord says, I would do just about anything apart from forcing you to be saved from that. The Lord loves you so much that he, that he says, I'm gonna provide a way so that you don't even have to go to the courtroom. It's not even he's gonna count, he's gonna say not guilty. He's gonna say to those who accept the gift of God, he's gonna say, <clears throat> gavel goes down, <clears throat> case dismissed. Now, why is that? Why would God do that for you? Well, as it turns out, God sent his only begotten son, the son whom he loved, and was sinless and perfect. And he was willing to take your penalty. An innocent, you know, son of God goes to the cross, dying a brutal death, and he dies for the sins of the whole world that anyone, whosoever, will believe in him and accept him will not perish, but have eternal life, not eternal death. What a glorious gospel that we know and love. It's, it's God loves you so much. The Bible says God would that none should perish, but that everyone would repent and come to the Lord. But the thing is, he doesn't force you. And if, if you say, I'm not gonna believe in Jesus, I'm not gonna accept the Christ, uh, of, of the Messiah of the Jews, you know, Jesus, I'm not gonna believe in him, then guess what? The Bible says, you're gonna stand in the courtroom of God, the great white throne judgment, and you'll be judged for your sins. And man, that's gonna make the Rittenhouse trial look like nothing. God forbid that any of you go to that throne judgment because it's gonna be horrible. But what are you trying to do, scare us? Absolutely. It's a scary proposition to have to stand before God and answer for all your sins. I don't want any part of that and how thankful I am that the Lord forgives me for all my sins and it's there for the taking. How do you become a Christian? You accept Christ and believe and say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You, you have to repent of your sins. We'll talk about that more as we get into this study. But here in Hosea 5, you say, Brett, what does that have to do with Hosea 5? It's a lot. Because what we see here in Hosea 5 is a courtroom scene. And we see the indictments coming out left and right and the accusations and the record of wrong is gonna be presented in this courtroom of God. And there's even gonna be those that testify against the Northern 10 tribes. We call it Israel. During the time of Hosea the prophet, uh, the nation Israel was divided in two. The Northern 10 tribes were referred to as Ephraim 
or Israel, or also called Jacob sometimes. Um, but the southern two tribes, was, that was just generally called Judah. And so this is an indictment against the men of Israel, the northern 10 tribes. And, and it's a courtroom scene. You see, in chapter one, two, and three of Hosea, we saw this beautiful, amazing story of Hosea the prophet marries a prostitute. God tells him to do that. And we saw how she was unfaithful to Hosea. And Hosea was this walking illustration, walking around weeping because his wife was prostituting herself all over town. And the people were like, what's up with Hosea? And Hosea would say, even as I am brokenhearted because of my wife, Gomer, who's off prostituting, so too the Lord is brokenhearted because you, Israel, have prostituted yourself with Baal and all the other gods that you're worshiping. And it was a living illustration and they had the, the three children, two of which were probably illegitimate children. We'll talk about that in a second. But it was, the, and the Lord said, the fruit of the, the marriage, this unholy uh, Gomer prostitute, the fruit of that was these, these children that were called no mercy, not my people, and scattered all types and pictures of what God was saying about the people of Israel. But then at the end of that three chapter sort of um, story, we saw that even though Gomer the prostitute was horrible and was unfaithful, by the end she was washed up in a has-been and nobody wanted her and she was being sold on the slave market. And the Lord said, to, uh, you know, Hosea, I want you to go and purchase home, uh, go, Gomer, <laughs> getting Homer and Hosea, Gomer and Hosea, you know, it's a mix, Homer. Uh, remember Homer for Gomer last week? Well. Uh, he buys her and saves her from her misery and despair. And the Lord says, that's what I'm gonna do for you, Israel. I'm gonna redeem you. We talked about redemption last week. It's an amazing, beautiful story. But then in chapter four, we have the opening arguments of the courtroom scene. We saw that on Wednesday night. <clears throat> the opening arguments, and now we're well into the trial uh, by the time we get into chapter five. And, and Israel's shaken in their tennies because of what God's saying. You guys are going down. You're in big trouble. Guilty, guilty, guilty is what we're gonna see here. And let's take a look. Hosea chapter five, uh, verse one. And there it says, hear ye this, O priests, and hearken ye house of Israel, and give ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you because you have been a snare on Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. And the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. Now, I, I'm gonna admit something. I love the King James Bible and I've been reading it for years and so I'm pretty comfortable with it. But I understand a lot of you are like, Brett, you're wacko, man. Why do you read the King James Bible? Uh, it's old 19 or 1611 English. Like, uh, well, I've got my reasons why I like it, but, um, but I also like some of the newer translations. And especially in some of the books, Hosea is one of those books that's particularly difficult in some of these lines. And I'll tell you why. Hosea was very poetic. He was, he was writing poetry here. Uh, in the form of a story and an indictment. And it's, it's kind of interesting. We've been studying his use of language and he uses, you know, figures of speeches all the time. And he does this sort of, uh, you know, rhyming thing. And, and he, he does all these kind of uh, alliteration and assonance. If you go to the Hebrew text, it's very creative, this, this book of Hosea. But also it's kind of a difficult book to translate into English. We miss a bunch of stuff when we translate from the original Hebrew into English. And so I'm gonna to try to show little red flags where the, the, we miss stuff uh, in the original, from the original Hebrew text. 
Um, it's kind of fun when you dive into it, actually. But all that to say, um, the, the, the transition from uh, you know, the Hebrew to the King James in 1611, well, some of the words we used in the English back in the 1600s don't even make sense to us today. And so it gets a little tricky, I'm just gonna admit it. So I'll show you some of the newer translations on some of these um, verses. And let me give you an example. In verse two, uh, it says in the King James, you know, and the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I've been a rebuker of them all. That, that's not really a language we use as much in the same way. So you have to kind of look at like say uh, the NIV as a good example here. The rebels are deep in slaughter, I will discipline all of them. That's what he's saying. Who are the rebels? The priest, the king, and the people of Israel. They're all rebelling against God. And what are they doing? Well, the language here in verse one is that of a hunter. You're like, you mean camo and like 30-06 and some, you know, uh, loopled scope or something? No, different kind of hunter. In those days, they made little snares out of sticks and stuff. And, and, uh, and they'd also set nets to trap critters and what have you. And, but that's what it's saying. The priests and the people have set snares out, it says in verse one, uh, from Mitzpah all the way down to Tavor. Um, and, the, and the Lord says, um, you've gone to slaughter your own people. You're slaughtering. You're, you're trying to mess with and hurt people. And that's what I see in our country today is people are setting nets and snares and trying to hurt each other. Like we're, we're so divided and, and hateful and upset right now. I think, you know, as much as I'd love to make a difference and I, and I think we're trying in some ways, but really we need the Lord to return. We need the second coming of Christ to fix the world today. Um, that's gonna happen by the way, and there's something to look forward to. But here in the microcosm of Israel, they were just being brutal to each other and setting snares. And when it says on mitzvah and nets were spread on Tavor, um, that's something we would miss when it says mitzvah and Tavor. And I'll tell you the thing we miss about that is um, we miss that mitzvah was the, southwest, the extreme southwest corner of the Northern 10 tribes and Tavor was the extreme northeast corner. So it'd be like in America, we'd say from LA to Boston. And what we'd be saying is, and everything in between. You know, the, the country, the United States, that's what they would say from Mitzpah to Devor, the Northern 10 tribes, that's the whole nation was ensnared and, 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 and nets set. And it was for the purpose, it says the rebels are deep in slaughter. They're trying to slaughter people and make a mess of things. And the Lord says, I will discipline all of them. Now, by the way, the word discipline is an interesting word. It doesn't mean that you're gonna crush them forever. It means that he's gonna discipline, not punitively, but correctively. Keep that in mind. God is gonna allow Israel to go through brutal times, but it's not because he just wants to crush them and deny them as his people. He's gonna redirect them. It's painful, it's gonna be brutal, but it's corrective, not punitive. Um, so we see that in verses one and two. The Lord's already starting out with his indictments. In verse three, it goes on. He says, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity, Judah shall fall with them. So now he's saying, man, you guys are going down. 
Now, why are you going down? Well, he says, first of all, in verse three, he says, I, uh, he says, I know what you're doing. There's nothing that's hidden from the eyes of God. And that's something that you and I should always be cognizant of, that God sees everything. You might think you're doing something that nobody knows about and you're doing it in secret, but God says, I know. He even sees on the inner chambers of your mind. There's an interesting story where the Lord shows the prophet, you know, the imagery, the chambers of imagery in the minds of the elders of Israel. And it was like pornographic stuff going on in the minds of the elders of Israel. And, and it was an indictment against the people of Israel. But in the same way, I hope you understand there's nothing that God is um, not seeing. And, and it's funny how we as people can almost convince ourselves, well, God doesn't know what I have done but he knows all things. And I remember last week I gave you a bunch of uh, things, uh, scriptures about that. We've even got more of those, by the way. Um, and uh, Proverbs 15.3 is one of those verses. I love, it says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He sees it all. Jeremiah the prophet had a similar thing. He says, for my eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And so the Lord sees it all and, and the Lord is saying, you guys think you're pulling it off and I don't see, but I see it all. Um, I wonder if that made him a little nervous. It's interesting in this day, speaking of the Rittenhouse thing, the things that probably uh, saved him was the video evidence because it was kind of undeniable when you saw what actually happened. You're like, oh yeah, that's kind of bad, uh, self-defense. And, but without the video, what would have happened? Hmm. In the same way, God has perfect video, 4K, uh, in perfect clarity of everything you've ever done. And if you try to say, well, I didn't do that, the Lord will say, well, let's just get out that film. Uh, go ahead and, um, you know, Michael, go ahead and roll that film. There you are standing at the great white throne and in, in all, you know, 3D, there's your sins before all. And you're not gonna be able to say, I didn't do it. The Lord sees it all. That's what the Bible says. That's kind of heavy. Now, again, uh, the King James makes this verse a little tricky. Verse four, they will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. Um, uh, again, a newer translation helps us out with this, uh, this, this verse four, for their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is with them, within them, they know not the Lord. Um, what is it that kept them from returning to God? Their deeds, their evil deeds. This is an interesting cart before the horse kind of question. Have you ever wondered like uh, what comes first? Do you return to the Lord and then you let go of your deeds? Well, in this case, the Lord's saying, you guys are not gonna return to the Lord your God because your deeds are not allowing that to happen. Um, I think sometimes you and I, we have to repent first and foremost and let go of our evil, wicked deeds. Because if you don't, Sometimes you'll find yourself not being able to really go to the Lord. Your deeds will keep you from the Lord. Are there things and sinful things? Now, now you know, you're here at church and you're on a Sunday morning doing you know, what we're supposed to do. So maybe, maybe you know, you're not this person that I'm talking about, but there's some people that they would like to go and get right with God, but they wanna cling to their evil deeds so much that they're unwilling to make those changes. And those deeds are the ones that don't allow them to return to their God. The idea is that if you change what you're doing, then God will change your heart and you'll come to him. 
It's an interesting thing where I've seen, and I'm somewhat of an expert on church because I've been attending church now for 55 years. And uh, I've been a Christian for 50 years. But one of the things as a pastor I've observed, uh, most of my life I've been a pastor. Um, but one of the things I've observed is that because of people's wicked deeds, it's amazing how it starts to sour their trying to come back to God, but they still cling to their wicked deeds. What is that? What do you mean, Brett? It's like this. You know, you're, let's just see, we talked about this last week, uh, two, two, last two ironworks, we were talking about pornography. So let's say the dude's just totally doing pornography. He's like, yeah, whatever, I'm gonna look at pornography and I, I don't care what God has to say about it. I think it's harmless visual stimulation, uh, whatever. But you know it's sinful, but you're just not one to let it go. Your deeds do not per, per, permit you to return to the Lord. So, so here's what I've observed. That dude tries to come to church and he'll sit in the sanctuary and go, look at all these people who think they're all holy. And he's got a chip on his shoulder. Oh, what do those people worship? Lifting their hands to the Lord. And, and a cynical, critical uh, nature. And it has something to do with his inability to come to the Lord and worship because his deeds do not permit him to. It, it, it's like I've noticed almost the more cynical and the more sinister people are toward you know, the Lord and his people and church. I'm not into organized religion. Like when I hear that, uh, it's always interesting because Jesus was into organized religion, as it turns out. Um, did Jesus want disorganized religion? Um, that, that's not really what I think uh, he wanted. Um, he, the Bible tells us what organized religion should look like. There should be elders, pastors, um, you know, teachers, uh, episcopuses, which is a, a word for bishop, but it's like a governing administrative kind of role. Um, and the Lord says, this is the church. And if you don't have those things, it's not really the church. Well, I'm not into organized religion. And it has more to do, I've found over the years with that person's own propensity to not let go of their sins. And so they become very cynical, very critical, and they, they're unable to sort of return to God with a, with a true and a right spirit. And, and so this is what happened to Israel. They were, were hanging on to their Baal worship. In fact, we read in other passages of the Bible during this time period, people would go to the temple and worship Jehovah but in the same sentence, they would say, we worship you, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, and we worship you, Baal, uh, God bless you both. And that was the way the children of Israel, they were hanging on to their wicked pagan worship while they were also trying to worship the, the true and living God. And God says, uh, yeah, your deeds are not allowing you to return to your God. You have the spirit of whoredom, that is adultery, like Gomer was to Hosea, that's, that's the idea here. Well. And then we see in verse five, and the pride of Israel doth testify. This is a courtroom term. The testimony against Israel was their own pride. It was evidence that they were uh, guilty as charged. And the Lord says, because of that, Ephraim's gonna fall. And he also mentions Judah. And Judah's gonna fall also, the, the southern two tribes. And then verse six, and they shall go with fear. Uh, pardon me, they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them. Brett, I thought that the Bible says, if you go seek the Lord, you will find him. Oh, it does say that, but there is somewhat of a caveat that is given to that. If you're gonna seek the Lord and you really wanna find the Lord, um, as it turns out, there's a little more of a requirement that you should know about. For example, um, it's Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. The prophet Jeremiah said, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. 
See, they were half-heartedly, they were half-heartedly worshiping Baal, and then they were bringing their flocks and their herds. That's what verse six is, uh, pardon me, verse seven is all about. No, verse six. Flocks and herds they were bringing to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Lord says, you can bring your flocks and herds to Jerusalem, but you're not gonna find me there in Jerusalem. Why? Because they weren't seeking after him with all of their heart. They were half-heartedly doing it. By the way, Jesus, I think, was referring to this in Matthew 15, the religious people of the day, verse um, eight and nine of 15 of Matthew. Jesus said, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Um, man, Jesus is calling out that, that human tendency to just do lip service. Oh, yeah, yeah, praise the Lord, and we're gonna worship you, Lord. But, but their heart was totally far from the Lord. Oh, God forbid that happened to you or to me where we can sort of go through the motions of worship or even gathering or even studying the Bible. We can go through the motions, but if our heart is far from the Lord, the Lord says, you'll seek me and you will find me if you seek for me with all of your heart. And that's the problem with the Northern tribes here. They're, they're claiming to seek God. They're even bringing their little sheep to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and they're acting like they're really spiritual and religious, but the Lord's like, eh, that's not, that's not gonna work. You're not gonna find me, but you're gonna end up empty. Well, then another verse that's a little tricky, verse seven. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a, a month devour them with their portions. Huh? Strange children? Are these like kids that are really into Pokemon or something? Like what's wrong with these kids? Poor strange children. Well, the, the strange child there, it, it's, it's the old way of saying uh, illegitimate. And that's, again, a newer translation of this verse uh, is uh, right here, NIV. They're unfaithful to the Lord and they gave birth to illegitimate children. Now their new moon festivals will devour them in their fields. That's the month part. When the King James says they're strange children and in a month the, the, their portions will be devoured, what's, what's the King James saying? It's saying the new moon, the monthly festival of the new moon, people go to worship the Lord there and hope their crops would be fruitful and prolific. But the Lord says, you can come and do your new moons, but they're not gonna help you. Your crops will be devoured. And this giving birth to illegitimate children. Remember Homer, Gomer and Hosea? Uh, uh, they gave birth to illegitimate children. And, uh, and the Lord's using that as an exa example of the, the fruit of their, their uh, marriage is illegitimate. And the Lord says, the fruit of your land is not gonna be good. Um, and by the way, throughout all of uh, history, the various people groups, uh, they all have these worshiping of pagan deities for their crops and what have you. Uh, they all thought, thought that they could have their crops be fruitful if they worshiped you know, their gods. I was in uh, the South Pacific in Vanuatu years and years ago, uh, a little island out there in the middle of the um, Pacific called uh, Pentecost Island. and. Um, and maybe you've seen that island on National Geographic. There's no roads, uh, there's no pavement, and just a bunch of little huts and people with bones in their noses and spears. It's very uh, native uh, jungle, if you would. But I was out there uh, on Pentecost Island and I went to a place where they do what they call land diving. And land diving basically is uh, bungee jumping for uh, crazy people. 
Um, so you, you, these, these guys, they, they go to the jungle and cut these vines out of the jungle. And then they tie this vine to their ankle. And then they climb up on this bamboo tower, 120 feet high and dive headfirst off the tower. And the goal is for the vine to be cut just at the perfect length so that um, it starts to tense up just as you're about to hit the ground. And the goal is to let the top of your head touch the ground. Um, you dive off this tower and you just wanna drop and then touch your head. Now, if you just measure it just a little bit off, your head's gonna touch the ground uh, and then split like a melon. Um, it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. By the way, there's one white guy that tried that and he's dead now from that uh, endeavor. But these dudes, these guys practice this from the time they're little children. Uh, I actually wasn't gonna do it, but I did climb up the tower. I was, I was out there climbing up this tower and, and the, the guys were watching me and they were saying, go climb up. And I started climbing, but they didn't realize, you know, me as a big American, those little bamboo twigs weren't really made for a guy like me. And as I was about three quarters of the way up this tower, all of a sudden you kind of hear this. And they're like, okay, come down, come down. Like, you know, like uh, it was, it was uh, really something. But why do they climb on a tower and tie this vine to their leg and jump off and hit their head on the ground? Why do they do that? For their crops. The guy gets up on the top and he claps his hands to heaven and he prays to his gods, the pagan deities, and say, please, may our gardens be fruitful this year. And if he does it right and jumps and hits the head just right, then their crops are gonna be blessed. That's what they believed. Um, I'm like, how about some miracle grow, man? Just forget the tower. It's like, uh, like that's crazy. Uh, you guys are nuts. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, you can see it on National Geographic. Look up, uh, you know, um, land diving in Vanuatu. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's the only place in the world they do that. But in some ways, the Jews had become sort of superstitious like that. Oh, Lord, you're gonna bless our crops because we, we've done the new moon festival. And the Lord's like, yeah, it's not gonna happen because you're, you're unfaithful to me. You've um, committed whoredoms against me, and so your crops are gonna be devoured, actually. Uh, that's, that's the way it's gonna go down. Well, then in verse eight, he goes on, and it says, blow ye the cornet, uh, Hebrew word there, shofar, the, the trumpet of the ram's horn. Uh, blow ye the, the shofar in Gibeah, and the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Bet Avin, even thee, o, uh, pardon me, after thee, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I have made known that which shall surely be. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Ephraim's oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. The Lord is saying, you guys are going down because you've purposely walked against my word and my ways. And Ephraim, you're going down. Now, there's another thing here that you'd miss uh, unless you kind of understood um, a, an idiom of the Jews in those days. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of try to explain it like this. Um, when, when I say, hey, let's roll, what does that mean? Does that mean we all get on the ground and start rolling around? No. In, here in America, when we say let's roll, well, it means something. It means let's go. And let's go with some gumption, with some enthusiasm. And in fact, that little idiom of America, let's roll, it kind of took on a whole new meaning. Remember back at 9-11? Remember the, the flight that was probably headed for the White House to crush that, you know, and crash there? Remember those brave uh, passengers on that flight that they called some of their loved ones on their cell phones saying, we're gonna take this plane from these jihadist terrorists and, th and then they said a prayer and then that one guy who was kind of leading the charge said, okay, let's roll. And they went and they took over the plane and cr it crashed 
but it, they saved countless numbers of lives because of their bravery. So when that guy said, let's roll, nationally that became even kind of a more meaningful phrase, let's roll. Well, the Jews had their own version of that. And it was this, after thee, O Benjamin. Huh? Yeah, that came from the book of Judges. There's a story there in the book of Judges. And if you look in this verse right here, in verse eight, there's a marginal reference usually next to you, if you have a margin reference Bible, that leads you to uh, Judges chapter five, um, verse 14. And there, it was during that time where, um, you know, uh, Deborah's song re referenced a, a mustering up of Israel's troops there in Judges 5.14, um, where Benjamin, the tribe, went ahead of Ephraim in battle against the Northern Canaanite forces. Um, and, um, and so what, what's happening here is Hosea is taking a national idiom, you know, after thee, Benjamin, means, means let's go, man, let's roll. Uh, that positive, high energy charge. Let's go, Benjamin, after thee, Benjamin. Hosea now puts a sarcastic twist on it as the poem uh, that this is, as the poetic nature of this is. Hosea says, yeah, you can say, you know, after thee, O Benjamin, all you want, but you're gonna go after Benjamin and you're gonna be crushed. You're gonna be defeated. You can say, let's go all day long, but you're still gonna be crushed. That's, that's the sarcasm, sort of a facetious kind of attitude Hosea the prophet is using here. But it means you're going down, and why? Because in, in verse 10, the Lord says, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Now the poor Jews, uh, they have been through a lot historically, um, obviously. Um, but I wanna remind you, God has a plan for the Jews. He's not forsaken the Jews, he loves the Jews. But did you know that there's gonna be a time where the Jews are gonna experience wrath like no other time? You mean worse than the Holocaust? What could be worse than the Holocaust? Jesus said this in Matthew 24, in talking about the end of the world, Jesus said to the Jews, he said, you guys are gonna go through worse things at the end of the tribulation period, after the you know, those seven years, at the three and a half years at the very end of that seven years, you will have tribulation like you've never had in your history. Like if you said that to other groups, you're like, well, how bad could it be? But you're saying that to the Jews? They've already had horrible, horrible stuff. But what's gonna happen at the end of the tribulation? Jesus says, oh, it's gonna get worse than you've ever had. And, and, and when is the Lord gonna pour out his wrath like water on the Jews? It's gonna be the last part of that tribulation period. It's not just on the Jews, by the way. The tribulation is gonna be pouring out God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. The whole world's gonna feel that, except for us. Why? Because we're gonna be taken out of here before that. Remember, rapture before the wrath. First uh, Thessalonians 5 says, we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe that's what First Thessalonians 4 is all about. We, which are alive and remain, will be caught up and be with the Lord forever. Uh, that's gonna be our future. But once the church is taken up out, those that believe in Christ, the rest will be going through a tribulation period, uh, the Jews included. And this is where the Lord says in verse 10 here, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. And it really echoes to Revelation chapter 16. By the way, uh, Revelation chapter six through 19 is all about the tribulation period. If you wanna read about that, it's those chapters. Revelation 6 through 19. But in Revelation 16, one, we read this. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your ways and pour out the, the vials or bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. 
Um, there's a pouring out of wrath. Um, we're gonna have, in the book of Revelation, you got these trumpets and seals and you've got these bowls of wrath that are gonna be poured out. It's gonna be brutal. And each bowl poured out carries a whole nother horrible thing that comes along with the pouring out. You say, well, Brett, that's brutal. God is gonna pour out a, a, his wrath like water upon the Jewish people. And that is true, that's what's gonna happen. And, and by the way, this should be a little bit of a signal that Hosea is starting to prophesy something that's bigger than just his local application. We'll see that even more in a second. Um, but he, it's gonna happen and Ephraim will be oppressed and broken in judgment because they willingly walked against the Lord. That's what it says there. Well, back to our text here in verse 12. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth to the house of Judah as rottenness. What does a moth do? What is a rottenness? It's, it's about, you know, what, what does a moth do? A moth can get into your closet and if you have, you know, if you don't have mothballs in there, it can ruin a suit of clothes. I don't have anything that nice, so moths don't come to my closet. But some of you fancy people with your wool outfits and stuff. Uh, I remember my grandmother had a thing of mothballs. I'm like, what are these, grandma? And she says, oh, these are mothballs. I'm like, what do you do? Do you like shoot them at the moth? You know, like when they come, you like throw them? Nope, nope. And, and I, I still, but that's the idea. The Lord's saying, I'm gonna slowly eat away at you and pretty soon you'll realize you're ruined. And then he says, the house of Judah is as rottenness, like wood, termites getting into the wood and rotting the wood and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, that, that's, that's the imagery God's using uh, to talk about the slow decay of Israel. Now, by the way, right here in our text is where some people argue, in fact, you'll find most of the scholars that talk about this, if you read commentaries and stuff, um, they'll say that the chapter break here is unfortunate, that the chapter break um, should, should be uh, not here in, in verse uh, 15 and then chapter six. Let, let me show you what I mean. As we read on, it says, verse 12, therefore I'll be unto Ephraim as a moth, uh, the house of Judah's rottenness. And then it says, when Ephraim saw this sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Yarev. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away and take away and none shall rescue him. Lord says some heavy stuff. Lord says, I'm gonna be like a lion and I'm gonna tear you up. Um, and Ephraim's gonna run away, but there'll be no help for them. And it even says Ephraim will run to the Assyrians for help. But running to the Assyrians is like running to another lion. Um, and if you re recall how this happens, this is, this is Hosea prophesying what's gonna happen, but his prophecy came to pass. The Jews started feeling the tearing of the lion of God and so they ran to, well, the leader at that time. His name wasn't King Yarev. You say, who's King Yarev here in this verse? Um, that's more of a title. It means the mighty warrior king. Who was the mighty warrior king that the Jews turned to to try to get help from being torn up? It was the, the warrior king, but he was also called tiglath Pileser, um, And his name sounds ominous because he really was. We'll call him Tiggy for short. Tiglath-Pileser. Now, what was the Tiggy's thing? Well, Tiglath-Pileser, remember how the Assyrians, you history people know this, the Assyrians were famous for being the, one of the most brutal people groups that ever lived. Like when you were in Bible times during Hosea's time, if you heard about the Assyrians, it would put a 
fear, a chill of fear down your spine because the Assyrians, they purposefully tried to make sure you were horrified of them. Um, they would take their enemies and in front of, you know, they'd subdue a city and then they would take all the leaders of the people they just captured, all the leaders and skin them alive in front of everyone and use their skins to upholster their furniture back at home. Like that's a true story. They'd pile skulls of all their enemies. You know, they'd behead them and just pile a mountain of skulls outside of their cities. If you were to go to like Nineveh, no wonder Jonah was like, I'm not going to Nineveh. Because Nineveh was one of those towns where they had a mountain almost as big as this room of skulls of people that they'd killed. Like it was a horrifying, scary bunch of people. But the Jews, God is saying, you're gonna be so scared, you're gonna run to them for help. And they did, they ran to Tiglath-Pilaster. But Tiglath wasn't gonna heal them or help them, just like the verse says, but he ended up crushing them. And Tiglath-Pilaster and the, the leaders of Assyria put hooks in the noses of the people in Israel and, and chained them together and marched them up into Assyria and made them sort of slaves. And eventually those 10 tribes became assimilated in the Assyrian culture. It was a horrible story, but this is Hosea saying, this is what's gonna happen to you. You're going down Ephraim, Northern tribes, and Assyria is gonna be the one that does it to you. And then you've got this weird change in verse 15. And this is why they believe this is what should be the end of the chapter, what we just read, verse 14. And then verse 15 says, I will go and return to my place till or until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction they will seek me early. Do you sense something changed here in this verse? Suddenly we're talking about the Jews acknowledging their offense and seeking the Lord truly and seeking him early. What's going on here? Now you say, Brett, who are you to say where the chapter break should be? This is an inspired word of God. Um, well, yeah, it is. It is the inspired word of God. But did you know that the chapter breaks and the verses were added you know, centuries later, the, the original text didn't have any verses or chapters. Now, by the way, I'm really thankful for chapters and verses. It'd be like if I said this morning, hey, welcome to you turn in your Bible to the book of Hosea and you get out your scroll. <laughs> okay. Um, and now turn to the, 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 the part that it says about the moth. You'd be like, uh, Cena, we just read that. But do you even remember where it is? The moth, uh, yeah. Well, it's nice to be able to say, hey, it's turn to Hosea 6, 12. We'll talk about the moth. Um, because, so, so I really am thankful for chapters and verses. But the reason I, I want to caution you is those were added later. The first English New Testament to use the verse divisions was in 1557. Uh, it was a translation by William Whitting, Whittingham. Um, but the first Bible in English to use both chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible published shortly afterward in 1560. So do you understand chapters and verses were added way later? Thankfully, good. But here's my point. Sometimes the chapters are broken up and they're unfortunate. It's almost like there's divisions that may not really, shouldn't even really be there. Like you could do your, your reading devotions and you read chapter five of Hosea and say, okay, I'm done. Verse 15's over. And then you go away and then the next day you come back and say, okay, chapter six. And you forget what said, was said in verse 15, even though verse 15 goes importantly with verse one of chapter six. It's like, it shouldn't be a break there. It should just keep reading. Are you guys with me on that? Um, it's, it's helpful if you remember that because that's kind of the way we need to read our Bibles, kind of in some ways ignore the chapter breaks because sometimes it does a little bit of a disservice, I think, 
to the text. That's, that's, uh, but don't take my word for it. You can look that up. And, but most scholars agree that the, if you're gonna, there is even a paragraph marker in verse 15 in some of your translations because they recognize there's a big change here. But I'm gonna say, I'm gonna make the argument, this is a huge change. The next four verses, verse 15, one, two, and three are important and and it's like a, an aside. This whole time we're reading about the destruction and how Ephraim's going down and you know they're prideful and they're, they're whoredoms and all this stuff. It's kind of this brutal dirge of, of accusation and, um, you know, and, and they're being indicted. But suddenly you get a change of tune and it's a radical change, but it's, it's, it's such an important prophetic word that's given. Let's break this down, verse 15. It says, um, I will go and return to my place. Now, who is the I will go and return to my place? This is Hosea saying the Lord will go and return to his place. Why? Until, or when will he come back? He says, I will go to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Now there's a a famous Jewish scholar, uh, a guy that just knows the Hebrew uh, and just kind of a whole nother level. I love Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's got a, a book called The Footsteps of the Messiah. Everybody should have that in their library. Um, I've had it since I was like 15, but uh, really adds some interesting insight to the original language of this little scripture I just read. The, the big takeaways are this. The implication is it's like God saying, I was with you, but you committed a horrible offense, singular offense. He, you know, this chapter is talking about all the offenses of the Jews. But here in verse 15, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense singular. There's one offense that the Jews will do that is this horribly unpardonable sort of offense uh, unless they extremely repent from that. What is that offense? And the Lord says, I will go back to my place until they acknowledge their offense and then they will seek my face when? In their affliction, they will seek me early. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of do the cheat and just tell you kind of what, what's, what's being said here is the Lord is saying this, um, I came, I will come to you and Jesus did. God became a man, Emmanuel, God with us, lived among the Jews and what did the Jews do? What was their offense? They re- rejected the Messiah. See, Hosea is prophetically saying what's gonna happen. That, that Christ would come and the Jews said, we will not have this man rule over us, crucify him. And the Jews rejected the Messiah. Now, now before you think, uh, become start thinking anti-Semitically, don't do that. We all put Jesus on the cross because we all sinned. Um, the Jews just happened to be there at the time. But we also did that. We're all guilty of the cross of Christ. I hope you understand that. But the Jews said, we will not have this man rule over us. And then it says the Lord would leave them. And he did. Jesus, after they despised him and rejected him, Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected. And then he ascended into heaven. He says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be with me also. Um, There in John 14. So that's what happened. Just like Hosea said, Christ came, but he went and he left them. And he would leave them until when? Until they recognized their offense, that they missed the Messiah, that they rejected God's son. And when will they re- realize that they missed it? When will they come to the knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah? It's gonna be in their time of affliction during the tribulation period. And if you've been with us in our study of Daniel, remember the abomination of desolation and then the making war against the Jews, it'll be during that time where the Jews will realize 
we missed Christ. He really was the Messiah. So verse 15 is the beginning of this radical event that's gonna happen. This is a singular event when they acknowledge their offense. It's a, it's a time in future history that's gonna be an event in time where they recognize their offense and seek their, the Lord's face. And it'll be during their time of affliction. And then verse one of chapter six goes on. And it says, come. This is the, the leaders of Israel saying, come and let us return to the Lord for he hath torn. That's, that's the ripping up as a lion. He hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. This is by the way, where the Jews get that name of God, Jehovah Rapha the God that heals our bodies. So they're recognizing God judged them and tore them up, the Jews in their history. But he says, when we acknowledge our offense that we rejected the Messiah, during our time of affliction, the tribulation period, then when we seek the Lord, he will heal us, he will bind us. Now, this is where it gets really cryptic and kind of interesting. Verse two, after two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. He shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain to the earth. This is a beautiful description of the Lord, you know, reflecting on what he's gonna do with the Jews. He's gonna bring them back and he's gonna save them. But when's that gonna happen? When they acknowledge their offense in their time of affliction, but what's this two days and three days thing? What does that have to do with anything? What happened in two days or three days? Well, this is where you gotta use the best commentary on the Bible. And which one's that? The Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And what does the Bible actually say? Well, this is where it gets really fascinating. If you know your Bible prophecy stuff, which that's what we're talking about, Second Peter gives us sort of a, a key here um, in, in our text. And what does it say? It says, but beloved, Second Peter 3, verses eight and nine, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Man, I love the, what the Lord's doing there. But the key here is when it comes to this Bible prophecy stuff, and that's what second Peter three is all about. The end of the world, Bible prophecy. But it says, don't be ignorant about this. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. If we kind of understand that and you go back to Hosea chapter six, what is it saying when it says in verse two, after two days, he will revive us, the Jews, the Jewish people. And in the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Okay, let's, let's do this kind of in a reverse engineering kind of way. When will the Jews live in the sight of the Lord? Anybody? The millennial kingdom, right? The second coming of Christ, Christ comes and rules and reigns from where? Jerusalem. Christ is gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem. The Bible's clear on this one. So when will the Jews live in his sight? It's gonna be after the tribulation period, the time of great suffering and brutality, but the Jews will see the Messiah and they'll repent of their rejecting of the Messiah. And then Christ, that, that's what ushers in his second coming. The second coming of Christ comes after the Jews realize that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Now, maybe I'm a little weird here, but I see this as kind of this amazing little passage in Hosea. You know, most people just blow through this. Okay, what's gonna happen two days, third day, whatever. But if you're a Bible typologist, you're understanding what the Bible says. Whenever you come to this idea of the third day, what is the third day a, a symbol of or a reminder of, anybody? Right, resurrection. So what is Hosea saying? It's real simple. After two days, fill in 2000 years, what's the Lord gonna do? He's gonna revive the Jews. After 2000 years, he's gonna revive the Jews. But it's gonna be on the third day or in that 3000 year, the third millennium, what's he gonna do? He will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. This is basically the Lord giving a broad general time frame of what's gonna happen. And that's exactly what happened to the Jews. After the Jews rejected the Messiah, how long were they scattered into oblivion? A couple thousand years, a couple days in God's economy, two days or 2000 years. But what are you and I watching with our own eyes this is where if you're an atheist, man, I would challenge you to read your Bible and see what the Bible says. Ezekiel 36, 37 talks about how the Lord says, I'm gonna scatter the Jews for a long time, but in the end times, I'm gonna regather Israel after a long time. How long? Hosea tells us. He says in verse two, after two days, he will revive us after 2000 years. And so here we are, you and I watching the Jews be revived. Are they alive yet though? See, it says he will revive them, but then it says he will raise them up in the third day. What does that all mean? Well, if you know your Ezekiel, remember the Valley of Dry Bones? The Lord says the Jews are like those bones, a bunch of dead bones laying out in the desert. But remember the bones started clinking together and the knee bone was connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bone was connected to the hip bone, remember that? And we saw that, but the, there were skeletons walking around with no real life in them. And then there was flesh put on them, but they still weren't alive but they were up walking around, sort of revived, but not really alive yet. And then the Lord says, but I will breathe my spirit upon them and then they will be brought back to life. And he's talking about the nation of the Jews that were scattered for 2000 years. There's many prophecies in the Bible that talk about this. It's just Hosea, he's saying for 2000 years, you're gonna be scattered, but then I will start to bring you back together. That's what it says. After two days, he will revive us, but it's in that third day, that's when I'm gonna, raise them up and that's when I'm gonna come. You see, I believe that tells you and me we're living in the last days because we're entering in that third, that 3,000th year. We're at the beginning, we're early in that 3,000th year um, of the Jews being brought back to the Lord. It's, the time frame is perfect and it could happen at any moment. I love that. That's why one of the many reasons why I believe it is possible that you and I are living in the end times. I feel like I lost some of you guys there. Are you guys okay? Is everybody all right? Okay, good, good, okay. Well, um, so this is gonna happen. Let's finish up chapter six so that we'll be postured and ready for chapter seven on Wednesday night. Uh, and uh, man, you guys have done some work today. Congratulations. This is what our Through the Bible on Wednesday night is like. I'm just doing that on a Sunday morning because I wanted you to see all this stuff. So verse four. It says, O oh, Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? Now you get a sense he's changing gears again back to more of the indictments against them. Um, o oh, Judah, that's the Southern two tribes, what shall I do to thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, as the early dew, it goes away. Some of you guys are like that. When you get up in the morning, you're all peppy and nice, and this is the morning dew. 
But then by noon, you're all dried up and grouchy again. That's what the, that's what the Lord's saying about Judah. Um, and then he says in verse uh, five, therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and thy judgments are as light that goeth forth. Now verse six is important. You say, why is it more important than, is it just scripture? You shouldn't say one's more important. Well, the reason I'm gonna say verse six is important of chapter six is because Jesus quoted this verse twice. And that's kind of important. Verse six, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, but they like men have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Why would Jesus quote this? I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Um, well, let's look at the real quick at the uh, mentions of this that Jesus gives us. Um, the first mention is Matthew chapter nine, verses three through 10. It came to pass as Jesus sat at meat for dinner, you know, within the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him. And said, now who are the publicans? They were horrible, horrible, sinful people. Like, okay, good. Um, uh, that's true. Republicans are sinful and horrible. <laughs> Uh, no, no, publican, very different. Uh, by the way, the publicans were into taxing people. So we could talk about a different group. But anyway, um, <laughs> they would do unfair taxes. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. But these are sinful people. And so the Pharisees are going, why is Jesus sitting down with the publicans and sinners? Um, and, the, and it says in verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus quotes from Hosea 6.6. 6. And he says, you know, go and learn what Hosea meant when he said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. The idea, you can be religious till you're blue in the face, but if you're not merciful and kind to people, whatever. It's like religion. These religious dudes are like, I can't believe Jesus is eating with a bunch of sinners. And they're a little shocked. But Jesus is like, I'm all about this. This is what you should be doing. Um, be merciful to these sinners and help them rather than sitting around piously, sanctimoniously condemning them. By the way, that's one of the things, you know, it's, it's tricky in these days because um, when I talk about things that do dip into politics, I'm not purposely trying to be political, but as a Bible teacher, I've noticed the Bible touches on all things political. I mean, it is kind of an amazing thing. So you can't really avoid some things. Like for example, this is, this is a tricky thing. I'm not sure what the answer is necessarily, but I'm gonna be really honest with you guys. When I mentioned Rittenhouse at one of the services, um, you know, we do five services here, so I get different personalities in each of the congregations. But um, one of the groups, when I said, you know, Rittenhouse was acquitted of all five counts, the, the, the whole group just, and they were all excited about that. And I'm like, in my heart, I'm like, well, yeah, because that was justice and right, and I, I agree and all that. But in my heart, I was thinking, boy, I wonder, I wonder if there's a bunch of like progressive liberals sitting in here and believe me, there, there are people here in the room that are that. And, and they're like, oh great, this church is just a bunch of, you know, whatever they wanna say. Cause I noticed that we're called names a lot, but, um, but you say, well, Brett, we're just gonna be who we are. But isn't it interesting that, you know, churches can almost like pigeonhole themselves into having only the people that agree with them in the building. I hope that people will come from all walks of life 
and come into this church so that they can hear the Bible. Because as it turns out, I don't wanna ostracize people and just say, oh, they're not one of us, so I'm not going to that church or whatever. Don't you understand? We want people to come here that are publicans and sinners and Democrats too. <laughs> we want that. We really do want that. And, and, and man, I'll tell you, it's not about politics and it's not about what our worldview is. What it's about is us getting into the Bible and saying, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And we have to be really careful not to be rah, rah, this political view or rah, rah, that politician or whatever, and because we'll lose our objective. And our, one of our main objectives here, I hope you understand, is to see lost souls saved. So um, that's, if you ever sense Brett, that's where some people think I'm a little schizophrenic. People are like, Brett, we, we think we know what your political views are, but sometimes you throw us off. And um, I've been accused of a lot of different things from different people who know nothing of what they're talking about. Um, but the truth is, I don't wanna just unnecessarily for no reason offend people. If I'm gonna offend somebody here, you know, you know what I'm gonna offend people with? If there's something I'm gonna offend, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll offend people with that. But I'm not really trying to look for ways to offend people, uh, but I am gonna continue to teach the Bible. I hope you understand my heart on that, but this is what Jesus was talking about. These guys, I can't believe he's hanging out with those people. But I guess in the same way, I hope you and I could say at Athey Creek, we hope those people are here with us so we can be more like Jesus. Well, the second passage, and I'm running out of time and I better hurry here, um, is Matthew 12, verses three through eight, where Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6 again. But he said unto them, you have, have you not read what David did when he had, was hungry and those that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the, the showbread, the table of showbread, um, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. You see, that's a story back in the book of First uh, Samuel where David and his men were starving. The only food in, in, in the whole town for his, that could, his army could eat was the table of showbread bread. You weren't supposed to do that. But this is one of those things where Jesus is saying, listen, love supersedes the law. Like they should have given him the bread and they, they did. But, uh, but it's funny how some religionists would say, oh, you can't do that because it's un unlawful. And then verse five, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you, in this place, one is greater than the temple. That's Jesus talking of himself. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's where he's saying, if you'd only known what Hosea meant, when he said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. In other words, they were all saying, you, what are you doing picking corn on the Sabbath day, Jesus? And Jesus said, man, you don't even understand the Bible. Hosea 6, 6 says that I would rather have you mercy more than your sacrificial system and all your religious uh, behavior. And Jesus used Hosea chapter six uh, to, to challenge those people. Well, quickly, verse seven, uh, pardon me, verse eight. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. We'll talk about that on Wednesday night a little more, the place Gilead. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way of, uh, by consent, for they commit lewdness. It's just talking more indictments against those people. And verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim, Israel is defiled. And, and, and you'd almost end it there, but then he tacks on at the end. And by the way, Judah, we're coming for you too. Uh, there in verse 11, also, O Judah, he hath set a harvest for thee when I return the captivity of my people. 
So here, Hosea the prophet, man, he's laying it on heavy. Ephraim, northern 10 tribes, you're going down, and Judah, you're next. That's what he's saying. Heavy, heavy scripture. But the good news is that the Lord says, even though I'm gonna judge you and you're gonna go through this time of wrath and trouble, I still have thoughts to save you from your sins. And I guess we end with this kind of heavy scripture and brutal passage, but, but it also makes me really glad because I know that I deserve what the men of Ephraim got. But because of the grace of God, we're saved by his grace through faith in Jesus. The very gospel that I talked about at the very beginning is what makes this horrible story very quickly turn into a wonderful story where the Lord says, I'm gonna save you and I'm gonna pull you out of that wrath because of my son, Jesus. If you're not a Christian, today is a great day to accept Christ. You don't wanna mess around with the wrath of God. It's real, it's coming. The question is, are you ready? Are you on the right side of this? You gotta be saved. You must believe in Jesus Christ and be born again. Otherwise, man, this should be a scary passage for you. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church in Jesus' name. Lord, how thankful we are for these reminders. As brutal as they are, we're so thankful that you gave us the way, the truth, and the life, eternal life through your son, Jesus. These Jews here, um, Lord, we can relate to them because we too have sinned. But Lord, thank you for revealing your son, Jesus, to us, the savior of the world. And so Lord, as we go our way, may our hearts rejoice in who you are. And as we look at this passage, the rest of it on Wednesday night, as we continue our study, give us eyes to see the truth of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.